Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is John J. Griffith, author of the novel Crystal Reflections. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel Crystal Reflections yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, it, it's definitely a work of historic fiction and um, taking place in the 19th century in the western Pennsylvania, southeast Ohio area. I, I, I almost hate to bring out the fact that it's about an industrial family because it makes it sound a little uh, sterile. There's very definitely an element of romance, love and romance in the story, um, which weaves in and out of the various factual uh, elements of the total story. And coincidentally, it's, the story is actually about my actual family, which... Uh, <clears throat> the details of which I knew nothing about until about five years ago. You know, again, that's the broad background. Sure. Well, can you tell me a little bit about that in terms of your family? How did you discover this uh, background and and what kind of led you to that? Well, I was doing a very uh, superficial uh, genealogical study, just trying to identify my great-grandparents. And um, there was one family that I been aware of since I was a child, but only in a very, very general way. And I only knew that they were involved in the production of glass in Pittsburgh. Uh, I put some information online and someone contacted me by snail mail and told me that I had one of the facts wrong. And that was the identity of my grandfather, excuse me, my great grandfather on my mother's side. Um, after correcting that, it opened up an entirely different focus because it was clear that this was the sort of missing link that I had had in my development growing up. And while I had known my great grandmother, my, my grandmother from that side of the family, she never talked about any of it, mostly because she actually was not born until uh, a year or so after it all had kind of disappeared through the suicide of one of my ancestors. Well, I'm curious, were you writing fiction at the time? What kind of led you from that, as you described it, kind of dry um, genealogical research to using this as a basis for a novel? Well, the simple answer is I decided to write some of it down for the benefit of my children and grandchildren. Um, I had written an autobiography of my own life about 10 years ago. I enjoyed doing that. The, the work ended up being around 275 pages. The problem was, is that I, I, while I've had a wonderful life, it has not been all that terribly interesting to the outsider. But having enjoyed the process and having stumbled into this story about my actual antecedents, I thought, well, maybe I'll just write 10, 15 pages about this for the benefit of my children. And after, as I started to roll into it, it just became, um, it, it just started to, to roll out. Uh, there were so many questions that I had in my own mind, trying to fit together those little little pieces of data that you get from uh, genealogical research. So I started I started doing the research and writing it down, and then it became kind of a mental explosion of um, transferring those ideas to paper. Uh, my writing style is one of uh, what I tend to do is I, I tend to allow things to roll around in my mind. And then once I've got that framework down in my head, I, I just start to write. And typically I can write 
20, 30, or 40 pages before I run out of gas. And uh, then I have to kind of start the process all over again. So that's the way it came about. It was, it was, I didn't sit down to write a book. Um, my profession actually has been in the financial services business. I've done a lot of business writing over the years and as well as this autobiography I just mentioned. Um, but it, the initial, initially I wasn't thinking I'm going to write and publish a book, but, uh, after really not that long a period of time, once I put pencil to paper, I was, uh, I had a manuscript that more or less demanded that I continue it, uh, to its conclusion. And so was this the first novel that you had written? Yes. That's what it's thought. Um, and, and so what was the writing process like for you? You mentioned that you would write 30 or 40 pages. I'm just curious, were, were you, um, outlining and writing a plot based on the research that you were doing or how did that come about? Well, I often hear authors talk about a frame. Um, in, in this case, I had a frame that was very well determined. I had the lives of actual living people. I had their locations. I knew where they worked. I knew where the factories were. Um, and I knew, of course, their dates of birth, their dates of death, and all of that other census-type information. That became my framework. And I knew that I needed to write the story inside of that framework. So essentially, at the very beginning of the book, I created a few dramatic characters to help me tell this fairly interesting but possibly dry story. Um, and as I wrote each chapter, it became obvious that something would have to happen in the next chapter to develop that original uh, dramatic element of the story. So I think... It was in the process of filling in the holes and creating the drama that I was able to bring the whole story to life in my own mind. And, and that's the basis upon which I built the entire uh, book. Given your experience of writing and getting Crystal Reflections published, do you have any plans to write another novel? Yes. Um, during the process of editing, the book. Um, and I worked with my editor, uh, from a gentleman up in your, uh, part of the country. And I, uh, I, I somewhat became frustrated because I had these writing impulses. I had another story I wanted to tell. So I started writing, uh, probably in June of 2019. And it's a story of a gentleman from St. Petersburg which is where I live, St. Petersburg, Florida, kind of a bad boy character who develops uh, very early in life a boat building manufacturing business and proceeds to pillage his way <laughs> through life and society in St. Petersburg, uh, working his way toward uh, such elements as bootlegging and carousing to an extent that uh, it ultimately will self-destroy him. I'm about two thirds of the way through the book and I would hope I'm hoping that I'd be able to publish it at the end of this year. Gotcha. Well, back to crystal reflections, many people are most familiar with Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania being known as still city is the still city. Probably not as well known as that Pittsburgh was a key manufacturing center for glass in the U S um, how did 
how did you do the research on that? And, and, um, and I'm assuming that that's part of crystal reflections. Absolutely. Well, the first thing to, to know is that at one moment in time, Western Pennsylvania was this produced 60% of the glass that was produced in the United States. That's a huge percentage of the output. And one of the largest families or one of the largest uh, factories at that time was my great, great, great grandfather's glass business. And it was called Fort Pitt Glass Works. They also had a multitude of other plants and subsidiaries that went along with that. Um, this occurred primarily, as you're saying, before the, the imminence of the steel industry. And I think that that is something that's not very well known. And, and if you actually do research in the libraries and look up glass and uh, glass manufacturing, there's very little information about it in the, in the written, uh, world. There are, there are snippets in various sources, many of which I, I listed in my in the bibliography of this book, uh, that talk in, in a few paragraphs about the actual factory that I wrote about. And again, it was just enough to give me historic accuracy and an historic frame, uh, from which I could extrapolate other information that I was able to develop and, and just, uh, of course, extrapolate my own knowledge of how people generally operate to build out the story that I thought would be something people can read and enjoy and still maybe learn something about the glass industry itself. What writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels? Well, I, I mean, I think obviously you've got to start with something that has some meat on the bone. Um, you know, there are millions and millions of people in this world. Actually, maybe there's billions now. I'm not sure. But, uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, their stories are the same. Uh, we all live and die in, in relative obscurity. Um, but if you have something in your background that you can actually attach some importance to and some, um, something beyond just the normal day to day, uh, I think that it's definitely something you, you should consider if you're, if you're a rock, if you want to be a writer or if you are a writer, it's, it is uh, good material to start with. Um, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm writing my, my second book is pure fiction. Um, it gives me a lot of license, but almost too much. I, I'm almost not sure where to, you know, where to draw the lines. This was in some ways, aside from having to do basic research, in some ways it was easier because I knew that I had to stay inside of those boundaries, that the guardrails of their actual lives. And much of the book is uh, factual and precisely factual. Like, so for instance, um, my great, great uncles served in the civil war and I, I researched the regiments they were in and the, uh, battalions they were in and, and the, you know, what their ranks were and who their senior officers were and what kind of weapons they used. I, I it's not a civil war. It's not an historic piece for civil historians, civil war historians, but it, it definitely is. Um, it, it's, it, it's precise and accurate in, 
in almost every way other than the for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done underlying love story which holds it all together what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed well a slight, if I may, just a slight digression. Um, yeah, sure. About uh, six years ago, I endeavored to read as many of the great American classics that I could with the time that I had available to me. So, and in fact, I even took it beyond American classics. I took it even into examples of War and Peace and uh, Pride and Prejudice and some of those, you know, those great old stories. I also read virtually everything Ernest Hemingway has published. I read uh, Faulkner. I, I read Steinbeck, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And um, I've always had a, a very strong interest in the United States, say, between the years 1860 and 1940. And that helped um, save that appetite, particularly the Hemingway-Steinbeck stuff. And... Um, after I, I finished that, I was, I, I got into this uh, biography, that our autobiography that I wrote about my own life. And um, to answer your question directly, over the course of the last 12 months or so, I really haven't had time to read for pleasure because I've been working my day job uh, as well as uh, writing a book and publishing a book. Sure. Um, and that's taken up the better part of my day. But the last book that I did read, and I think it was about two months ago, maybe three months ago, was um, The Garden of Good and Evil, which is a book written by a gentleman, his name is uh, John Barrett, I believe. And uh, it, it takes place in Savannah, Georgia, during the 50s and 60s. And it's a very good story of corruption and uh, mysticism and race relations in the, uh, in that city during that period of time. And it's a very, when you go to Savannah, you'll find it in all of the local bookstores. It's, uh, I think it's a good read and it's not a long one, but it's, it's very good. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel crystal reflections? Well, I'm still, you know, building out my marketing program and promotion program, but I am on Facebook. And, uh, uh, I, I have, uh, developed, um, a, a, an advertising process through that mechanism. I'm also listed in Goodreads. Um, and of course the book is available at, uh, Barnes and Noble, Kindle, Amazon Kindle, and, um, as well as a couple of local independent bookstores in Western Pennsylvania. Um, right. Well, well, on, on Facebook, would someone search for your author page as John J. Griffith? Is that, is that the way? I think the better way would be to use the book title, okay. Crystal Reflections, because I, I, I have a business page Got called it. Crystal Reflections. Okay. Right. And I'll, I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well.
Well, again, we've been speaking with John Jake Griffith, author of the new novel, Crystal Reflections. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And John, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, my pleasure. Now, stay tuned as John Griffith reads from his novel, Crystal Reflections. This excerpt occurs following Amy Sennett's disappearance. Paul, still wounded from the loss of his first love, meets his future spouse, the mother of his children, and the fulcrum of his career. In mid-December 1860, Paul received an invitation by Mr. and Mrs. Edward Dithridge to attend a Christmas celebration at their home on Fifth Avenue on Saturday the 23rd of December. The invitation also stipulated that he could bring an escort. Paul, though chastened by his experience with Amy Sinnott, had no one in mind, so he resolved to attend alone. On the day of the event, he bathed and donned his finest suit. He borrowed his father's good overcoat and borrowed the family two-wheeled buggy, and at five o'clock he left his house, rode down Bingham Street to Carson, across the Monongahela Bridge, and on to Smithfield, where he turned right past the Fort Pitt Glassworks and on out to Oakland. He pulled up to the address at 255th Avenue and was astounded by what he saw. Before him was Mr. Dethridge's home, a large red brick structure that would have fit ten of the houses he was living in. The house was lit up with glass lights, candles, and controlled torches that made it look fantastical with its porches, pillars, gables, dormers, and large windows which were the hallmarks of the very early Victorian age. A light snow had been falling all day, which gave a luster to the grounds that enhanced the beauty of the setting. Paul entered the governor's drive and released his horse to a butler, who assured him that the family mount was in good hands, and he stepped onto the porch and through the front door, along with an older couple who had already been announced. The entry hall was gilded and decorated with fresh pine bows as the house smelled of perfume, fine food, cigars, and alcohol. About sixty guests had arrived. They obviously expected many, many more. Most of the guests were older, established businessmen and their spouses. Occasionally, a couple would bring along a young adult or son or daughter. Since Paul was only twenty-one, he was one of the youngest persons present. He tried not to make up for his youth by keeping his conversation on business as much as possible and as much as the other guests would permit. By nine o'clock, there were over one hundred and twenty guests in the house, and many of the gentlemen were becoming inebriated. Paul had been careful to only sip a few glasses of Madeira, because he knew a drunken performance could be deadly to his career. Paul noticed his drink was served in the finest glass of cut crystal he had ever seen. It reflected the Christmas lighting within the house and reflected a nearly palatial setting with which he was most impressed. He was thinking of leaving when Mrs. Dethridge, the woman who was now approaching her fiftieth year, grabbed Paul's hand and said, Mr. Zimmerman, I would like to introduce you to my daughter, Harriet. You may address her as Hattie, as we all do. 
Harriet offered her hand, and Paul said, What a pleasure to meet you, Harriet. Your father has had only wonderful things to say about you. Oh, and please, just call me Paul. Paul, father has told me how helpful you were in securing his loan. I suppose we all owe you a debt of gratitude. Oh, no, Hattie. It was all the doings of Mr. Shoemaker. I was his instrument in the whole affair. Harriet picked up a plate and served Paul a few canapes. Paul, here you must try the roasted duck and liver pate. It is delightful. Harriet was Edward's second-born of his marriage with Louisa. She was about six months older than Paul. She was attractive, with clear white skin, dark brown hair that, though netted, still fell to her shoulders, blue eyes and high cheekbones that made her face seem thinner than she really was. She was wearing a red and green layered double hoop skirt and a tight bodice that exposed the amount of cleavage on the top. The ensemble included an open V neckline with three-quarter sleeves. A velvet necklace with an ivory brooch completed the stylish look. At age 22, she was old enough to wear the more sophisticated look, even as the same dress would have been nearly scandalous on a 17 or 18-year-old. Her figure was like her mother's. Although she was younger and leaner and in good shape, she had the look of a girl that played toe-to-toe with her brothers, and that was no doubt true. She was old as she engaged him in conversation. Paul, father tells me, folks, no you is quite an equestrian, Harriet said provocatively, as if to dare him to boost. Your father is too kind. I do love the beast, though. I always jo- enjoy being with him, Paul said. Someday soon you must come by and see our stable. We have four workhorses and two lovely riding mounts. Perhaps if the weather is nice, we could take a little ride over to this Shenley farm. It is beautiful there in the springtime, and Mrs. Shenley told Father we may ride there any time we like, Harriet said, with an unusual directness for a young society girl. Paul's curiosity was picked by how forward Harriet was. Perhaps he thought she was... She had had too much punch. No offense was taken by it, though. In fact, he thought it charming. After all, he couldn't offer her the same experience, for his family only had one broken-down old workhorse, and if she didn't speak up, the moment would pass. Yes, Harriet, that sounds delightful. I would like to do that. Perhaps after the weather breaks in the spray, he said in all sincerity. Harriet, a few late days later, decided that she needed to see Paul again, and although such a meeting might be difficult for him to arrange, he might fear being perceived as an opportunist by her father. Also, he wouldn't have had the social opportunities available to him to extend her a casual invitation. She took the matter into her own hands. After Christmas dinner, she stepped out onto the veranda with her older brother Edward, who was enjoying a cigar. And after a brief exchange, she said, Edward, I wonder if you could do me a small favor. Well, sister, that depends, he said teasingly. Did you meet Mr. Zimmerman on the other night, she asked. Oh, yes. Father insisted that I make him feel comfortable. He seemed like a nice enough fellow. We chatted for about 15 minutes. Talked about hunting, I believe. Perfect, Harriet said. Could you invite him here to go hunting with you on the Shenley farm? 
Perhaps you could track foxes in the snow. Sometime soon. And how would you fit into that scheme, Hattie? I'm sure he wouldn't want to see you trudging around the farm in hip boots and a shotgun, Edward said with hints of sarcasm in his voice. Let me take care of that, she said confidently. I'll try it. But don't blame me if he says no or defers till spring. I can't work miracles, you know. Edward chuckled. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.